Good morning. So I'm sitting over here uh, in front of Angie and Mike and Wyatt, and uh, when you sang that song, you're the one, you're, or no, the, um, it's in you, my life is in you, it's in you, and we end with, it's in you, and Wyatt said, in me? <laughs> so I hope that you have been paying as close attention so far as Wyatt has, uh, we're worshiping together this morning. Hey, glad you're here this morning. If you are a guest of ours, we are especially honored to have you with us today. Um, I don't know how late you stay up at night. If you ever watch Jimmy Fallon uh, late at night, you will know that fairly often he challenges his viewers uh, to tweet things with a hashtag. Not too long ago, he challenges his viewers with hashtag relationships are hard. And he got the whole list of relationship tweets. And I want to share a couple of those with you this morning to kind of set things up. One, one guy tweeted this. My wife brought home low-sodium bacon. Now I know what it means when someone says, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. <laughs> Another tweeted, hi, welcome to dating. Here are your only two options. One, stay together forever. Two, break up. No pressure. <laughs> when you think about that, it is the only options, right? You're either going to stay together forever or at some point you're going to break up. Um, I like this one. Whenever my wife and I are in public and we hear a kid crying, we look at each other and say, that's not our kid. Then we fist bump. <laughs> Your parents will appreciate that. You know those adorable idiosyncrasies you loved about that person when you were first dating? After 25 years of marriage, they're what the police refer to as motive. <laughs> and then finally here, uh, a, a girl tweeted this. I've been dating a guy for nine months. I have his picture on my phone's home screen. Whenever I find myself going through a particularly hard day, I take out my phone and look at his picture. It comforts me. Knowing that if I can survive being in a relationship with this psychopath, I can survive anything. <laughs> Let's face it, relationships are hard, right? Relationships are stressful. Add to that the fact that relationships are never static. They're always moving in some direction. All relationships are moving in some direction. You're either you know, getting closer and closer to that person or you're sort of drifting farther away from that person. There, there, there's always a, a fluidity there. You, know, you think about songs on the radio. Just about every song you hear on the radio, no matter what genre, really no matter what era, talks about someone either following, falling in love or falling out of love. People that get along or people that don't get along. Relationships are hard. And all relationships require an intentionality to make them successful. This morning, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at a well-known passage from Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And in this book, especially in this chapter, Paul is going to talk about relationships. He's going to talk about horizontal relationships, and he's also going to talk about vertical relationships. And the two are very much intertwined. Here's how the fourth chapter begins. 
Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for which you have been called by God. You're looking at, a, at an older translation that probably says, walk worthy of the calling for which you were called. And then he says, be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Always keep yourselves united in the Holy Spirit and bind yourselves together with peace. Now, you need to know something about Paul as a writer to help you understand exactly what he's doing here. Paul always begins with what you need to believe before he talks about how you need to behave. In other words, he always talks about doctrine before he talks about lifestyle. And that's exactly what he does in the book of Ephesians. In fact, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there is no commandment. Paul doesn't tell these readers, doesn't tell us to do anything. Now, he shares a lot of things that we need to understand. He shares a lot of truths that we need to know. But he doesn't tell us to do anything until he gets to what we know as the fourth chapter. And that's where the real first command in this book shows up. Let me, uh, let me put this verse back up in, in a different translation. This is from today's Living Bible. I beg you, I, a prisoner here in jail for serving the Lord. Paul says, I beg you to live and act in a way worthy of those who have been chosen for such wonderful blessings as these. Paul says, I beg you, live your life, act in a way as one who have been chosen for such wonderful blessings as these. When I was growing up, my dad had something that he said to me all the time, from as far back as I can remember. Every time I left the house, he would say, remember who you are and what you are. I'd go out with some friends from high school, remember who you are and what you are. I'd go out on a date, remember who you are and what you are. I left for college, remember who you are and what you are. Never once did I ask him, what do you mean? <laughs> now, who am I? What am I? I didn't have to ask him, I know what he meant. Now, I never understood if it was an encouragement or a warning. <laughs> I always took it as kind of an intimidating warning, but I knew exactly what he meant. And you know what I told my kids whenever they left the house? Remember who you are and what you are. And I think that's what Paul's doing here in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. He's telling us, you need to remember who you are and what you are. You need to be aware of who you belong to, whose name you bear, who you represent. Remember how you've been blessed. Remember who you are. Remember what you are, and then... Live like it. Walk that way. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of times when God tells his people, I want you to do this, I want you to obey me, and then I will bless you. Here in Ephesians, Paul is saying, through God, or through Christ, we have been blessed by God. Now, because you've been blessed, obey him. Walk worthy. God has always wanted his children to walk like who they are. Go back to, to the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul opens this letter by saying, Long ago, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy 
without fault in his eyes. Before the creation of the world, Paul says that God wanted his children to walk worthy. Because when God looks at us, a child of his, what he sees through the blood of Jesus, what he sees is someone who's holy. Someone who's blameless, not because of us, but because of that blood. God sees us that way. Now, God sees our heart. Our friends and our neighbors can't see our heart. But God wants them to be able to see our walk, our action, our lives. Paul is telling us what we need to do in order to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. And it's interesting what Paul says the first steps in this walk need to look like, Paul is going to focus on relationships. In fact, he's going to focus specifically on unity. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why does Paul start there? Why start these first steps of a worthy walk talking about relationships? Talking specifically about unity. Because Paul knows, and you've heard me say this before, but Paul knows our oneness is our witness. We're to illustrate to the world what God is doing by bringing us together through Christ. And so Paul says, keep the unity of the Spirit. And you notice he doesn't say achieve the unity of the Spirit. He just calls us to express it. The unity has been made possible because of Jesus. We talked last month, it's made effective because of the Holy Spirit. Our charge is to keep what God has already created. Consider this. What does that phrase Keep every, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit imply. Well, what it implies is there has been, there always will be in the church, differences. Now, when I say differences, I'm not talking about doctrinal differences. I'm not talking about a different plan or a different purpose or a different mission. I'm not talking about watering down or compromising on the Word of God, and Paul's going to make that crystal clear in just a minute. I'm talking about the differences in us. Because if everybody looked just like me and acted just like me and thought just like me, I wouldn't make much effort to keep the unity of the Spirit because it would come pretty naturally, right? wouldn't take much effort. But Paul knows that Oneness does not equate to sameness. It is a blessing that the church is filled with differences and diversity. And again, I've said this before, I would hate to go to a church where everybody was just like me. I would hate to be part of a, a church family where everybody thought and acted just like me. As I've said, the singing would be terrible. No one would pay attention to details. We would be here on time, I'll give you that. <laughs> but I would hate to be somewhere where everyone's just like me, because for one thing, how would I ever grow in the things that I'm supposed to grow in? How would I be able to grow in love? How would I be able to grow in patience? Because I'll, I'll be real honest, 
I'm, I'm really good at loving me. And I am incredibly patient with me. But it's an effort to love and to be patient with some people. Well, how am I going to do that if I'm not around people who make me think, who challenge me? How am I going to keep all those one another uh, commandments if I'm not around one another's who are a little bit different than I am? And again, that's what God is doing in the church. He is proving that he can bring all things, he can bring all people under Jesus Christ. We, as the church, we are the advertisement of God's wisdom. But sadly, too many people, too many Christians, too many churches have focused too much attention on the small, peripheral, inconsequential differences. You might remember a story from not too many years ago in the Baja Peninsula of uh, Mexico. Ten whales beached themselves. I don't know if you remember that or not. But there were ten whales that beached themselves. And they brought in a bunch of people to try to rescue and to save those whales. And all of their efforts failed. All ten of those whales died. And they brought in some marine biologists to try to figure out why these whales beached themselves. And what they finally concluded was these whales were chasing these much smaller fish and they chased them into shallow waters where whales don't belong. The tide went out and the whales were stranded. And the headlines read, Giants Perish Chasing Minnows. Satan knows exactly what the mission of the church is. Satan knows exactly what our job is, what our mission is, what our commission is. To share with a lost and dying world the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And Satan's going to do everything he can to distract us from that mission. He, he's going to try to keep us focused on small things, insignificant things that uh, really have nothing to do with our real agenda. And so Paul says the first step toward a worthy walk is to keep the unity of the Spirit. And then he tells us why that is so important. Now, we're all used to watching uh, football on television, especially college football. You notice in college football, every time a team scores a touchdown, every time a team makes a great play, you know, kind of a swing in the momentum, they show the stands and full of fans and the student section especially, everybody's going, we're number one. We're number one. And I'm always thinking... Actually, in the polls, you're number 23. <laughs> and that touchdown isn't going to make any difference, but good. You know, you feel good about yourself and you feel good about your team. You know, we all want to be number one. Well, Paul is about to lay some ones on us. Paul is about to give us a list of some really important ones. Now, Paul is, is like a master of lists. Paul makes a lot of lists. And this particular list is going to really define our Christian faith. And it's kind of ironic that some of the things on this list, some of the concepts, are the very things that people have divided over, you know, through the centuries. But this list was never meant to divide anyone. These are the fundamental truths that we unite around. So here's the famous passage. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we could talk about that passage for a month and a half, and probably we should. Maybe we will one day. But for this morning, I just want to real quickly break that down a little bit. One body. You think about all the metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the church. Building, bride, body, family, kingdom. What do they all have in common? They all stress the fact that Jesus is Lord over one church. There's just one church. There's just one body. And I wonder sometimes what Jesus would think if he were here today and he looked at his phone and he Googled churches near me. And he saw all the division. And he saw all the confusion. That is hell's idea of the church. That is not heaven's idea of the church. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. So it is with the body of Christ. And if there's just one body, then it's time that we call division within the church what it is. It's spiritual amputation. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that we can't afford because we have to stay focused on the main agenda. We can't get distracted. We have a mission. We have a calling to walk worthy of. If not, we're going to be like those whales chasing minnows. And we're going to end up in a place that we don't want to be. And there's just one spirit. Talked at length uh, in the last several weeks about the fact that the Holy Spirit works in all who are called through Christ. And on the heels of this plea for unity, I think it's interesting that Paul mentions the one Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always worked to unify believers. It's never the Spirit's intention or desire to separate believers. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul would say, Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we've all been baptized into Christ's body by one Spirit. And we all have received the same spirit. And because we share that same spirit, we share the same expectation. Because there's just one hope. And again, Satan has done a really good job of trying to distract us about what our hope in Jesus is. When is Jesus going to come back? What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? What's it going to look like when Jesus comes back? And we can talk about those things. I just want him to come back. I want to focus on the fact that he's coming back. John would write in 1 John chapter 3, Dear friends, now we are all children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We all look forward to the same hope. The time when all those things that divide us don't exist any longer. So shouldn't we be able to enjoy that unity here 
on earth as well. Because there's just one hope. And there's just one Lord. Of all the things that Paul lists here in his list of ones, this is the one you better get right. This is the most non-negotiable aspect of our Christian existence. Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10. I got verses 12 and 13 on the screen there, but I'm going to back up and actually start reading verse 9. You can follow along and just listen. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And it's by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. And then verse 12. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gives his riches to all who ask for them. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's just one Lord. And his name is Jesus. Now, a lot of people will tell you there's two lords. Jesus and me. <laughs> Jesus and my job. Jesus and my family. Jesus and my hobbies. Jesus and my bank account. Now, they might not actually say that. That's not their talk, but it's pretty obvious. That's their walk. But Paul says only one person, one power can rule your heart can consume your life, can guide your steps. We are united in Jesus, and He is Lord. And one day, one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because there's only one faith. There's only one faith. There aren't different faiths for different times in history, different cultures, different communities, different parts of the globe. There's one faith for all people, all places, all times. It is a faith that is centered on the saving work of Jesus. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Earlier in this same letter to this same church, Paul would remind them when I was with you, I didn't talk about anything except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where Paul places his faith. That's where we place ours. The occupied cross, the unoccupied tomb, is the very center, it is the core of our faith. And if anything else is at the core of our faith besides Jesus, crucified and risen, then we're just like those whales chasing minnows. And there's just one baptism. Do you find it a little bit odd, or at least interesting, that Paul includes baptism in this impressive list? Let me 
think Paul would think it was odd at all. Because Paul understood that no matter whether you're a publican or a tax collector or a zealot that in a former life had persecuted the church, no matter who you are, we all come to God through the same doorway. We are all baptized into Christ. He'd put it this way in Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I heard a story about an American preacher who went on a short-term mission trip in Central America. And while he was there, he was approached by a native preacher, and the native preacher was trying to explain to him some of the good things that were going on in the congregation where he worked, but there was a real language barrier. Uh, the American guy didn't understand Spanish, and uh, the Spanish guy didn't speak any English, so they're really struggling with the communication until the native preacher brought out some pictures to help explain what was going on where he was serving. And what do you think those pictures were of? You know, he could have showed them pictures of you know, a group of people in a room, but you know, what does that tell you? It's a group of people in a room, right? Could have showed pictures of people even singing or praying, but again, singing to who? Praying to who? You know, what he showed them was pictures of people being baptized. And immediately... This man who couldn't speak his, his, his man's language, immediately he understood the message. Okay, good things are happening, right? The kingdom is expanding. God is at work. These brothers and sisters, the, the, the family is expanding. We're family. We're family because there's just one father. No Christian is an only child. You've got family. You got family in this room. We're all family. We got family way outside the walls of this room. We're all family. If we are in Christ, we are family. Now, you might not always want to claim them, <laughs> but God does. God does. You ever notice the very first word in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He doesn't say my Father. He doesn't say your Father. He says our Father. You need to know this about our Father in heaven. He doesn't play favorites. We have all been adopted into the family. And we are all co-heirs into the blessings and the inheritance. We're all family. We need to act like it. We need to walk like it. Because Paul's first step in this worthy walk is to keep the unity of the Spirit. Someone said that unity is like a fire. If you don't work at it, it won't last long. So I ask you this morning, will you be the one to make an effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Because it's going to take work. And it's going to take an effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Remember, God has a lot of children. 
And we're not all like you. And you're not all like me. So you, me, we need to make an effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. This morning, my encouragement to all of us, remember who you are and what you are. Act, walk, live like people who have received the blessings of God. I've got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement this morning. As a church family, if we can help you in any way, if we can pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, we invite you to, to meet us down front. Let's go ahead and be standing while we sing.